giving that your attention today is very moving. Every, I've seen it several times now, and it's very, very stirring to my spirit, and I, I hope to yours. Today we're going to focus on a passage in the New Testament that speaks to baptism and addresses some of the things that Amanda was talking about as well as we try to understand how we as sinful people can be changed and live a a new life, a grace-filled new life. So we're going to read from Eugene Peterson's message version of the Bible today, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. So what do we do, Paul writes? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so we can see where we are going in our new grace-sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin-miserable life, no longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in this life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him. But alive, he he brings God down to us. From now on, Think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means that you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run a little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full time. Remember you've been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My very first pastorate, as you know, was in Hanover County, and then the Lord called us here after over 16 years. And the church where I previously served was one that had already made a decision to relocate prior to my coming. So we... Shortly after I arrived, sold the old building, 
moved into a school where we would worship for two years as we developed the campus for the new site. After about one year, we broke ground on the 10 acres and began to work intensively with architectural firm to develop that first phase of construction. I will never forget the time when the building committee and I met in the architect's office to look over the plans one final time before construction would begin. We were all gathered around the table. The architect was standing across from me, and we were looking down at the sketches. My perspective was as if I were standing behind the pulpit in the sanctuary. So I'm looking down, and I see the communion table sketched where it should be, the stage sketched where it should be, the pulpit sketched where it should be, the choir loft even sketched where it should be. And then I looked behind the choir loft and I noticed something was missing. So I asked the architect, I said to him, um, excuse me, but I see everything here, but I don't see the baptistry. You know, we're Baptist people. We have a baptistry. And he looks at me kind of funny and he points his finger down and he says, oh, it's right here. And he drew... He drew my eyes to a circle about as large as a dime next to what was the communion table. And he said, it's right there. Wait a minute. So we're, we're Baptist people. Well, it was kind of funny, and then we, around the table, learned that he was Lutheran. And apparently he, the architect had used some sketches from a church that didn't have a baptistry like we did, but used a font right down there on the floor of the sanctuary. So we had to go back to the drawing board and add eight feet to the back of the sanctuary to accommodate the baptistry pool and the plumbing and the stairway and the changing room and all of that. One of our very financial financially astute building committee members said, well, don't you think we could save a little money and just leave it off and continue to use the other churches like we've been doing in the school? And the rest of the committee looked at him and said, we don't think so. And that was the right decision. That was a core value of our church. Baptism of believers, believers' baptism is a core value of our church here. You can see the beautiful stained glass window adorned, adorning our baptismal area helps us to see that believers' baptism is central to the way that we practice our faith. As Baptist people, we have two ordinances, one being believers' baptism and the other being the Lord's Supper. We are a believers' church. One scholar writes that we are a regenerate church, meaning that we place emphasis on a person's decision to come freely into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, and then believer's baptism follows. One of my favorite writers is Bill Tuck, and he's a retired seminary professor, retired pastor, and prolific author. And he's got a little book called Our Baptist Tradition. And then he, he writes, experiential religion is central to us as Baptists. An experience of God's grace is foundational. Each individual is called to an encounter with God. No one is automatically born a Christian. 
Each individual must make a personal decision. No one is supposed to be a member of a Baptist church who has not been saved by grace. That's one of our core values. But some, some critics are quick to say, writes Bill Tuck, well, that may be in theory, but when I look at Baptist churches, I don't see much evidence that all these people have been saved by grace. Tuck admits that this criticism often seems valid. And to illustrate, he shares a little story about a girl who had gone to visit her aunt. And y'all, I say aunt and uncle. I know some say aunt and uncle, so forgive me, but aunt, so she goes to see her aunt, and at one night, she goes into the bathroom where her aunt was getting ready for bed. And she was, her aunt was putting cold cream all over her face. And that's that white creamy stuff that they put on the whole face like a mask. They leave it on there for a while, and then they wipe it off. So she, her aunt does all of that, and she says, Auntie, what are you doing? And her aunt replied, oh, I'm making myself beautiful. A little later, her aunt wiped all of the cold cream off, and watching her, she said, what's wrong, Auntie? Looks like it didn't work. Some people look at Baptist churches who claim their members are regenerated and say, looks like it didn't work. We don't see evidence of changed lives in your churches. And I would say, sure, there are times when I have lived like that. We all have not lived the example that we would hope. But that's why we are here. We don't have perfect churches. There are many people in our churches who have never experienced God's grace, but we keep offering the message. We keep preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified, seeking to reach out to people to bring them into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord. And we believe that believers' baptism is that outward expression, an outward symbolic expression of this saving knowledge and having experienced inward transformation. When a baby is born, perfect timing today, when a baby is serious, when this is in my notes right now, we could not have planned this out. We could not. It's awesome. We give new life right here in our church. Stay right there if you want. So, uh, but when a baby is born into the life of the Baptist family, we don't, we don't baptize the baby right away. We have a parent-child dedication. We as a church come alongside that family seeking to help them to raise their little one in the ways of Jesus Christ, to teach them about who Jesus was and how he lived and how he treated other people and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And then at an age of accountability, maybe it's 8, maybe it's 12, maybe it's 14 or older, whenever that person has an appointment with God, they present themselves before the family of God for membership, and subsequently are baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that that child will come to that saving faith in Jesus Christ as they grow and mature as we come alongside of them. This is the gateway for membership in our church to a life of being a part of the family of God. We are, as Christians, adopted into the family of God. We are chosen in an adopted family, that child is chosen 
and is raised up in that family and has all of the full rights and privileges of that family. And the same is true, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, of us as we are adopted into the family of God. We have the full inheritance of God, all of the rights and privileges to be a part of God's family. We have a Father in heaven who loves us so much that he gave us his one and only Son that he would have done that even if we were the only person alive on the face of this earth. He loves each of, one, each of us as if there were no other and loves every one of us just the same. Baptism symbolizes our adoption into the family of God. The word baptism is, has some neat history to it. If you go back to the Greek New Testament, originally the word baptizo meant to dip and to die, D-Y-E, like your dying fabric. For example, baptizo described the process of dipping a cloth or a garment into a vat of dye to color it, leaving it there long enough for the material to soak up the new color, then putting that garment out of the dye with a permanently changed outward experience. Kids, how many of you have dyed Easter eggs? Raise up, raise up. Little ones and adult kids too, right? Same thing. Next time you dye Easter eggs, you're going to think of baptizo. You're going you're to look at dyeing your Easter eggs totally different. The next time you do a tie-dye shirt or d- dip a piece of fabric into some dye to change its color, you're going to think baptizo. Baptism is a symbol that we have a life change that we have newness of life. Paul writes of this new life in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. We see this in verse 4 of our text today. We therefore are buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. Water baptism is a symbolic proclamation of the fact that believers have been buried with Christ and have been raised with him. When a believer is placed in the baptismal waters, it symbolizes being immersed in one condition and coming out brand new. Listen, baptism doesn't save us. Sometimes people will say, Pastor Bob, I want to get baptized. And when I hear that question, I would say, well, let's sit down and let's talk. Often with parents or uh, sometimes if it's an adult, we'll have uh, another staff member or sometimes a deacon. We'll sit down and we'll have conversation about what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ because baptism is a symbol of that which has transformed your heart. The Apostle Paul is trying to give the churches at Rome some helpful information as they make disciples. He had longed to go to Rome. In chapter 1 of the book uh, you, of his letter, you'll see that. And so he, he wrote them hoping that he would be able to be with them later. Verse, uh, chapters 1 through 11 are really his theological discourse about the gospel. And then chapters 12 and on help the believers know how to live out chapters 1 through 11. In the early parts of his letter, he addressed righteousness that's demanded by God of both Gentile and Jew. 
He laid out the basics of salvation and justification, which means we are made right with God through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that this new life would lead to a sanctified life or living a holy life, practicing one's beliefs according to the pattern of Jesus Christ and seeking to give God the glory. After laying this foundation of justification by faith and what it means to accept the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he then poses some rhetorical questions to help people who may have some, un some questions or uncertainties regarding this. Perhaps there were some people who viewed this free gift of grace as a license to just do whatever you know, they wanted to do. And, and Paul, he, he helps us with this rhetorical question. And it's, it's sort of like, if grace is free and unlimited, and I receive that, then the more I sin, then the more God's grace I will receive. And so, what a party that would be. I mean, if, if I can sin more and receive more grace, and then sin more, there's this cycle of doing what I want to do. And Paul is saying that is not what is reflected in our baptism. When we are baptized, we are baptized into the death of Jesus Christ, and we are also baptized into his new life, which is according to the pattern that he has set forth to us. So I want to share three basic pictures of baptism that helped me as I was preparing for today. The first one, the first picture, is as an anchor. In verses 1 through 3, we see this anchor that helps us to know that grace is not something to be cheapened or abused. That we are held accountable before God and we must recognize that grace is not something to be cheapened. This anchor keeps me grounded. My baptism as an anchor keeps me grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died trying to conspire to assassinate Hitler, he gave his life for the cause of freedom. Talks about cheap grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he says, cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, forgiveness without confession, cheap grace, he writes, is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace, he writes, is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which we must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a person the only true life. It is costly because what has, what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. What has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. So my baptism in March of 1983 two months after I chose to become a follower of Jesus Christ, serves as an anchor to keep me grounded in what Jesus did on the cross for me. 
and it helps remind me not to cheapen his grace. Second image. It's a compass that points to new life. True north. Verses 4 through 10 help us to see this new life that is promised that we receive, not because we are baptized, but because of what Jesus has done for us and that which we accept as truth and follow daily. Baptism helps to keep our spiritual eyes heavenward. Numerous times Paul reminds us in these verses of being united with Christ in his resurrection, that we who died to self in Christ are raised to new life with him and that we will live with him for all eternity. A pastor was putting his young son to bed one night in their bedtime routine, and only a pastor's child would probably ask this kind of question, but he looked up at his dad and said, Dad, what is Maundy Thursday? And so his dad began to tell him that Maundy Thursday was the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples, and began to tell his son that subsequently Jesus left the upper room The next day he was crucified, which is Good Friday, and then put in a tomb. And then on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And the dad said, we celebrate Easter because of the great event of the resurrection of Christ. And then the young son, seven, eight years old, looked up at his dad and said, Daddy, will Easter happen to me? In these verses, Paul is reminding us that the church is supposed to be comprised of those who claim they've experienced Easter. We are Easter people. My baptism, our baptism is as a compass that points us continually to the true north that we are Easter people. Easter has to happen to each of us as we commit our lives to follow Jesus Christ as our living Lord. Our baptism is an anchor that grounds us in a costly grace. It is a compass that points us to the true north of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we are Easter people. And third, our baptism, my baptism, your baptism, is a lens that provides life perspective. It helps us to live different, and it helps us to look at people different, to look at the world different. Students, when you all go to Myrtle Beach this afternoon, many of you are going, you're going to encounter people who are different than you, who might have made different life choices than you, and God wants us to see them through the lenses of Jesus Christ with his costly grace. Those who are going to Passport Kids this week, you will meet students from other schools and churches. You'll see people who are different, who might have made different life choices than you, who might look different, but we want to see them through the lenses of Jesus, and our baptism, when we are baptized, helps have helps give us a reminder to look at people and look at the world according to Jesus. Again, verses 11 through 14. You are dead to sin. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way that you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly in full time. Remember you've been raised from the dead, Easter people, into God's way of doing things. 
Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. So I want to ask you some questions as we wrap up today. The first question is for believers. Today, or maybe this week, can you name the ways your life radically changed after Jesus came into your heart? I want to challenge you to think of ten ways your life radically changed. Write them down. And if you have a tough time thinking about that, then ask somebody close to you. And maybe they will help you to see that. Number two, when Christ first changed you, how did the world look different? Think back to that time when you met the Lord. and How did things look different to you? And third, to all people, maybe believers, but also not believers, what step of faith and obedience do you need to take today or this week? What does that look like for you? It may be making a decision to follow Christ and to step into the waters of baptism. It may be to serve in some way through our church. It may be to talk to somebody in leadership here, one of our staff or leaders, about how you can get involved. It may be making that decision to step into membership because you haven't yet done that. I don't know what that is for you, but what step of faith and obedience do you need to make today or this week? If you have not yet followed the Lord into believer's baptism, I pray that you will. He's calling each of us. I pray that you respond as we pray together. God, thank you.